Well, it is my delight to introduce to you our speaker this morning, Kevin Teasley. Uh, this is not Kevin's first time here. I believe he was here back early summer last year. Um, Sarah and I go way back with Kevin. Um, early early mid-90s, uh, Kevin and Sarah worked down in the valley uh, at the admissions office. I worked up on the hill, the shining hill uh, of student services, And uh, but Kevin's been about the countryside serving in different capacities, mostly, I guess, exclusively with RUF ever since. I'm gonna read your bio from the website. I hope you got it right. Um, here we go. This is what Kevin says about himself. <laughs> I am in my fifth year as the Reform University Fellowship Chief Advancement Officer. Prior to that, I served as RUF Campus Minister at Wake Forest University and also at Tennessee Tech University. I'm a graduate of Ole Miss and Covenant Theological Seminary. More importantly, I am married to Rosie and the father of Kennedy, Micah, and Molly Jane. When not with my family, you are likely, likely to find me playing golf, fly fishing, listening to the Abbott brothers, or watching Ole Miss sports. Yeah, is that good? All right. Thank you. Good to have you here. That's well from our brother here. Uh, I guess the only correction I was making, this is now my ninth year in this role as Chief Advancement Officer. Goodness, time moves on. And uh, I left Wake Forest University as the REO Campus Minister back in 2015, and my, we now live in Nashville. And uh, it's great to be with you, great to be with, you know, old friends here. And uh, they remember me when I had hair. <laughs> uh, Y'all can laugh at that, it's okay. Um, so um, we're, I'm going to be pre preaching this morning from Psalm 84. Um, if you'll turn there with me, or maybe it's on the screen, I'm not sure, but Psalm 84 is what I'm going to be reading from. And um, this psalm, what scholars and commentators believe is that it was, um, it was written by the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah, they were a very special family among the Israelites, and it was, it was their great blessing to, to care for the temple. And it was... It was their job, and they took great pride in this, to, to, to dust the woodwork, to polish the gold and the brass and the silver. They would have been in charge of taking care of all the different elements that would have been used in worship. If there were sons of Korah in the building today, they would be the ones who would take care of the communion trays, uh, the baptismal font, for instance, and that sort of thing. Um, most of my time as a campus minister was spent at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, and the signature building at Wake, on Wake Forest campus was Wake Chapel. And it's just this big, magnificent, cathedral-like building. It's the signature building. Uh, there were two presidential debates that took place in Wake Chapel. Um, if you ever catch a Wake Forest sporting event on TV, the, in the B-roll footage, they will show Wake Chapel uh, many times during the broadcast. And uh, during my time there, I got to know the the Wake chat the Wake Chapel sexton, and um, and he was like uh, uh, to call him a custodian would not do his job service, but he was known as the sexton, and he took care of Wake Chapel, and and this guy was fantastic, and he he worked beyond any expected hours that were placed upon him. He took great pride in taking care of Wake Chapel. He knew every inch of Wake Chapel, and he loved every inch of Wake Chapel. And as I think about my friend, 
who was at Wake Forest a lot longer than I was, he was a really great picture of what a Sons of Korah would have been like. Uh, he didn't just care for the build. You know, the, these Sons of Korah, they, they didn't just care for the building, but they absolutely loved the temple. And, and one day, this son of Korah, he's so overwhelmed by the beauty and the brilliance and just the majesty and the grandeur of the temple and, just, and, and so moved by the beauty and all that it represented and conveyed about God that he just breaks into song. It just moves. I mean, hey, and we're close enough to Nashville here and that there's probably songwriters in the room but, and people who know about being moved by beauty so much that they got to write it down and they turn it into a song. And that's what this son of Korah did right here. He's so overwhelmed by it, he just burst into psalm. And this is what he says. Verse, uh, psalm 84, I'll start in verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, of, o Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. Let's pray that the Lord would bless the teaching of his word here this morning. Father, I pray that this morning you would give us uh, more than just a glimpse of what this son of Korah, what was dawning on him as he was worshiping you in your temple. Would your spirit work in us in much the same way as you worked in him. May we see you, may we see your glory, may we see your, your grace. Most of all, may we see Christ. That will only happen as your spirit works by and with your words. So be pleased to meet with us now in that way. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at this psalm. I want us to see what was it that moved the son of Korah so much that he burst into song, with the hopes that the same thing will happen to us, that we might be moved uh, in that way as well as we see what he saw. And the first thing that I want to point out that he was struck by as he burst into song is just the, the, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the beauty of God. I mean, there's many ways that we could talk about this, but there is certainly, as he is in the temple and taking in its beauty, there is a, a reverence that comes over him. There is an awe that comes over him. There's a respect that comes over him. He says here, Oh, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Uh, this phrase, Lord of hosts, is referring to this God who has all the resources of the universe and he holds them in the breadth of his hand. 
that this God who, go, who goes between galaxies the way that you and I go to our mailbox, right? This vastness, this greatness of this God, this God that you realize you can't mess around with, you don't trifle with, you don't make excuses to, like this holy God. I, I think about, you know, where the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah, he says, I am the high and the lofty one. Right? He is the three times holy God. The angels, they smoke and burn in his presence. Right? He is the high and he is the lofty one. Um, he is the Lord of the angel armies. The, the image that you could get here is, is something like maybe King Arthur on a big green field getting ready for battle. He's mustering his war horses for battle and they're stomping their feet, stomping their feet on the ground, Banners snapping in the wind, helmets and swords, uh, soldiers armed to the teeth, just all of it glistening in the sun. Um, one of the things I love about this passage is that the psalmist here, he really gets his, he, get, he, gets, um, he gets his into the mind of a pilgrim who is on, their, on his way to Jerusalem for one of the great feasts. And you really have to try to enter into that picture uh, to, to understand what's going on here. And, um, you know, he says here, Blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Um, this psalm was surely sung by pilgrims as they were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feast. The word Zion in verse 5, that's the exalted name for Jerusalem. And when a pilgrim was on his way to Jerusalem for one of these great feasts, there would have been this really climactic moment as they're coming over this certain hill. And what scholars, you know, widely believe is that climactic moment probably was the Mount of Olives. And it was when you came over this hill, this is when you would have gotten your first glimpse of the temple. The, your very first glimpse of the temple. And again, you've got to enter into this picture here and try to even imagine, like think about if you were a little child. And this was your first time ever to come to Jerusalem, this, this glittering city, this city of gold with these high walls, and it would have just, and they're dominating the skyline way higher than anything else that you could see was this 200-foot temple, and it was a structure unlike anything that you had ever seen before, and there would have been all of this gold and all of this marbling just glittering in the sun. And think about this. What if you were from some little tiny place like Nazareth or Capernaum, and the only reference you had were these mud huts, these short, simple clay structures? Can you imagine seeing the temple for the very first time? This temple was built to feel overwhelming, to make you feel small and insignificant. It was built to take your breath away. And you really, like I'm really trying to get you, to pull you in here so that you can, because you have to imagine seeing something so beautiful, something so awesome that it absolutely took your breath away. That was what the temple was. Well, think about what that was for you. Maybe, maybe if you can remember the first time you ever saw the ocean or maybe just really majestic mountains. Um, maybe the first time you ever saw the Grand Canyon, you know, one of those places where you're traveling and you just can't wait to get there. If you've seen Niagara Falls, I can remember, the, I grew up in this little town in Mississippi, 7,000 people. Kosciuszko, Mississippi is the name of the town. I remember at 20-something years old, the first time I had ever seen New York City. 
It absolutely took my breath away. I'll never forget flying in, first of all, and seeing out the window and thinking, what in the world is that down there? And I can remember coming over that bridge, and I can remember my heart rate going up. And I can remember standing there in the middle of New York City, just hardly able to take it all in. It took my breath. I could not believe everything that was around me. Think about whatever that was for you. And that's what it would have felt like going to Jerusalem. Like beauty was just reaching out and grabbing you. It would have taken your breath away. And I think that that is the sense of what verses 5 and 6, what he's getting at there. When he says, blessed are those in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Even as they go through the valley of Baca, it says, and what Baca is, is it's the parts place. It's, it's a desert um, it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, this parched place, it makes it a place of springs, where er, and early rains cover it with pools. And, you know, one of the things scholars and commentators point out is that these feasts that these pilgrims were going to, they did not take place in the time of the spring rains. These were fall type festivals. There was no rain taking place at this point. So this is not talking about little rain here, but what, it, what the image that, that he's conjuring up is, the image is this, is that even for the worst part of the journey, even for the, the parts, places, the difficult parts, there's this desire, there's this thirst for the beauty that you're about to encounter, that you're going, like when they would come over that first hill and they would see that beauty of the temple for the very first time, it energized them. It gave them strength for the rest of the journey. It's a really great picture that he's painting right here. It's like the, the excitement uh, and the beauty of the final destination. It's what gets you through the difficult places of the journey. What an amazing picture of life right there, right? And this is for the, the physical temple back in this day. You realize that's the picture of us as Christians now as we're heading for the promise, the, 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 new, the real promised land the new heavens and the new earth, the real temple, right? It's the beauty, the excitement of that destination that gets us through the difficult places. And the son of Korah is completely captivated by that. The glory, the splendor, the beauty of, of that. Um, how lovely is your dwelling place? How beautiful, how majestic are your dwelling places? Like whenever you, whenever you think of real beauty... Something so dazzling and overwhelming like the temple. I mean, like I said, this was built to be absolutely spectacular. It was built to completely dwarf the pilgrim, to make them feel tiny as they approached it, because that just elevated their thoughts and views of the majesty of God. And he's completely taken in by that. But yet, the other thing he's complete, and I love this about this psalm, the other thing he sees about God and that he knows and that this temple is showing him that this God who's utterly high and lofty, uh, he's utterly unlike any of us, this God is absolutely approachable. He's absolutely safe and he's absolutely welcoming. And as intimidating as this temple might have been, it's also a place that you should be able to call home when you're in God's presence. And he's so overwhelmed that in this temple, this place where God dwells, the Almighty God, the creator of everything that is, you see, he's, he's overwhelmed by all that. But look what else he notices. He notices, as he's called in the grandeur and the majesty of this whole scene, he notices that, like, up in this little corner over here, there's a sparrow 
flitting around. And then he looks over here in this corner, and he noticed this bird net, bird's nest that's got these baby swallows in it. He ca that catches his eye. And one of the things that I really love about this is this son of Korah, who cared for the temple, who polished the brass and dusted all the woodwork, woodwork he didn't think, we got to get these birds out of here. Get those nasty things out. You know, kind of like, like, a, like a homeless person in front of a nice na downtown Nashville restaurant, right? Get, move along. Get away from here. You don't belong here. That's not what the son of Korah does with these birds because somehow what he knows is that God is not like that. And in what I would say is this absolute moment of brilliance, this son of Korah, he realizes that that little nest and that little bird says so much about God's welcome and hospitality that even a sparrow finds a home. That God is this radically hospitable God that welcomes the smallest and most vulnerable creatures. I love that about this. Look at what he says in verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O God. You know, Jesus, Jesus says that. He says that God knows every single sparrow out there, even when one falls to the ground. And Jesus takes hold of that image to kind of teach us that God even cares about you. Like, no matter how insignificant you might feel this morning, no matter how small, how, no matter how odd you might feel, how out of step, out of touch, these tiny little birds show this son of Korah that God's care for you is very, very wide and very, very deep, and that God's face shines upon them. I love that about this passage right here. Jesus welcomes them, them all. The song that we just sang was so great about this, about God at table with man. Um, Jesus welcomed them all, the tax collectors, the Samaritan woman, the lepers, the prostitutes, people who weren't Jewish, the Gentiles, all the untouchable people that nobody wanted anything to be around. Jesus welcomed them all, all the outsiders of his day. Jesus welcomed them. And it was, it was, all, to the, it was all to the consternation of his contemporaries. It was one of the most confusing things in the world about Jesus to the people around him, that he welcomed these kind of people. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of characterized all of Jesus' opponents, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, is, is what they all wanted was a really comfortable life in Israel. They didn't want to have to deal with the poor and the lame and the outsiders. They didn't want to have to deal with people with skin diseases. They wanted to be Israel to be safe. They wanted to have great schools. They didn't want to have to deal with those people. That was what they wanted out of life and out of their religion. And listen, if, if you know yourself at all, you've got to know that that drift is in every one of us. Every single one of us. The drift of any church, the dr even Israel, and you know that Israel was hardwired for the outsider, by the way, right? They were built and created to be a blessing to the nations. To be a they were built for this, and it was the drift of their hearts to be go away from this, towards safety and comfort and isolation and not welcoming people the way that Jesus did the swallows and the sparrows of the world. Um, I rem 
I'll, I'll use a story from seminary because I was sitting in this class with Richard, and, it, and it's, a, it's a class I'll never forget. I've never heard anybody say, Jerem Barr is an apologetics and outreach class. And one of the things he challenged this room full of soon-to-be pastors, he said, listen, guys, um, you've got to know that the longer that you're a pastor, the fewer and fewer non-Christians you're going to know. It was, and, and then he just started talking about this wall of isolation and separation and how easy it is for Christians. And, and honestly, it's not just a pastor thing. It's a Christian thing. The longer you're a Christian, the drift of your heart and the drift of your life, the fewer and fewer non-Christians you're going to know. And what Jerem was challenging us in that class that day was you've got to fight against that every day of your life because that's the drift. To not care for the swallows and the sparrows of this world. Um, one of the most discouraging things that I would hear, that I heard over my time, 19 years as a campus minister, is I would have students tell me, you know, I came to RUF, Kevin, a couple of times, but I didn't feel welcome. It was the most dis discouraging thing I could ever hear. Um, it's a really hard culture to create. It really is, sad to say. It's hard to do that. I would have students tell me sometimes, Kevin, I'd, I'd love to come to RUF, but I just feel, t I'd feel too ashamed. Um, or I came to RUF and I just felt judged. Now, some of that's on them. I'm, I, I can go there, and I would often go there with students. But an awful lot of it was some perception that they were getting from us that they were not welcome there. I had some, I had some students tell me every, you know, every now and then I'd hear this, go, Kevin, I just don't feel cool enough to come to RUF. And that was the most shocking one to me because I'm thinking, who here is cool? <laughs> I'm not, certainly. And, um, but, listen, there's just a sense that a church should feel like home to people where they feel, say, I feel welcome here. That one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Um, I've stayed in a lot of really nice homes uh, as people have invited me to stay there. And um, in these homes where there's these amazing folded towels and linens on the dresser and, you know, private bathrooms and, you know, walk-in showers and, and queen-size beds with Egyptian cotton with like 8,000 thread sheet thread counts, whatever that means, but it's supposed to be a big deal. Um, and, you know, gorgeous homes, but I didn't know the host all that well, and I can tell you this, I didn't want to stay there a thousand days. <laughs> but I've also been in homes of great friends, and I've slept on couches where I could take off my shoes, and I could put my feet up on their couch. You know, they gave me refrigerator rights, and um, actually, I was staying with a person in North Carolina uh, last year. And, um, and, and I don't know why I was being so sheepish with him, but, but I, with him and, and his wife, and I just, I said, hey, do you mind if I have, can I have this? Hey, I saw this in the refrigerator. Do you mind if I grab And finally the guy, he looks at me and goes, Kevin, stop treating me like a miser in my own home. Anything that you have is, anything that you see is yours, right? He just wanted me to feel that welcome. You know, he wanted me to feel that uh, just, just at home uh, there. And, um, and another, another great story is um, I, I was staying with, with the family, and uh, I do fundraising for RUF. If you, that, did, that didn't come. That's basically what I do. I travel all over the country, and sometimes I stay with these families. And, um, and I stayed with this one family. Again, this was, this was just over the last year. And, um, and, and after church, we ate lunch, and we're sitting in their living room talking. 
And, um, and I literally fell asleep while they were talking to me. <laughs> I really did. I absolutely fell asleep during the conversation. And when I woke up and realized what I'd done, I was absolutely horrified and embarrassed that I'd fallen asleep while these people were talking to me. And the, the wife looked at me, and I'm apologizing profusely. And she goes, Kevin, no, 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 don't you dare phrase. I'm so honored that you felt so comfortable and so at home that you just fell asleep right during our conversation. Because that's exactly what happened. I felt that comfortable and that at home. And here's, here's my point. It's all about the host. It's all about the host. That's what's important. Um, home for the psalmist here, it, it's a person, not a place. I love how even in this psalm, there's a progression that takes place. He starts out talking about the temple and the courts and this geographic location. Of, but there's this real shift that takes place. It starts as early as verse 2, where he starts talking about this living God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And tents back in that day were magnificent things. Um, I mean, they had king-sized beds in these tents, right? But he says, I'd rather be in the house of my God where God is present than to be in the tents and there's no presence of God. I love that he says that right there. But he understands that there's no more welcoming, no more safe place in the world than in the presence of this God. And that's one of the things that makes him break in the psalm. And the, 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 the third thing I want, to, want you to see is um, not just the, 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 the majesty and the beauty of God that burst him in the song like this, um, but he sees this welcome, this approachability of God that makes, that makes him burst into song. But he also sees this grace that's there. And I really love this about this passage, this grace of God. Um, back in Numbers, when the Israelites were spending all of those years wandering in the desert, some of y'all may be aware of this story, but there's a group of people that are so rebellious and they're they're so, they're just so rebellious that they almost, during this time of wandering in the wilderness, that they almost destroy the whole nation. And, and they actually try to take over Moses' leadership. They try, to overthrow, they try to overthrow Moses. And the entire project is almost thrown off, humanly speaking. And guess who it was that led this rebellion? You know who it was? It was Korah. Kor is the one who led this, tried to throw the whole thing off course. And, um, and Korah is judged by God for his rebellion, but God spares Korah's sons because he still had a plan for them. He still had a purpose for the line of Korah. The prophet Samuel even comes out of this, the, the line of the sons of Korah. And I just love that about this passage because who else than the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what other God than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to take these traitors and immediately after the wilderness wandering is over and they reach the promised land, he looks at the sons of Korah and he goes, listen, y'all are going to be the greatest in my house. You don't know why you're going to be the greatest in my house? And y'all are going to be in charge of taking care of the, y'all are going to have this great role of caring for the temple. It's because y'all are going to know how much you, you, you're going to appreciate it the most. You're going to understand my grace the most. That's why you're going to be the greatest. No wonder, no wonder the sons of Korah are now standing in the temple singing songs of praise about God bestowing favor and honor and looking upon his grace, looking upon his children with grace. 
Of course he's in the temple singing about that because he knows how bad he needed it. He, he appreciates it like nothing else. And you know that every time he came to the temple, these sons of Korah, and they saw that altar, and they saw the sacrifices, they thought, I got no business being here at all. It's only by God's grace, right? The, and the great thing about that altar, every time they saw it in the temple, you know what's so awesome and beautiful about that altar? It's not me up there. It's something else. Every time we come, and we're about to go to the Lord's table here tonight, and every one of us ought to be struck with that every time we come. Can you imagine, again, enter into the story here. Can you imagine what those sons of Korah thought every time they, they participated in that sacrificial system? It's not my blood being shed up on that altar, but it's the blood of something else. God took the punishment that my sins deserved and placed it on something else. Y'all, we come here today, and th there's, there's no altar because what we're celebrating is that what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, the sacrificial lamb. And when his blood was shed, there's no more payment needed. It, it, it is finished and it is done. And that, we ought to come with the same astonishment and humility, humbleness, you know, just amazement when we come here to the Lord's Supper. To know that it's not my body that was broken. It was not my blood that's been poured out, but it was Jesus. So come with the same grace. Come joining with songs in your heart, much like the sons of Korah, because you, we're, we're all a bunch of sons in Korah, a bunch of sons of Korah here in this room as we come to this table. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you know, once again, I don't just pray for a glimpse uh, of what these sons of Korah uh, acknowledge this day in the temple, but I pray that you'd pull the veil back by the power of your spirit. Um, even as we have looked at your word here now, uh, you promised that when we, by faith, uh, drink from this cup and eat this bread, you promised to dwell with us in a unique and a special way. And, and I pray that that would happen here um, as we do this, as we take of this bread and drink from this cup. We thank you for the blood, the body that was broken of Christ, his blood that was shed on our behalf so that we can be connected uh, to you so that we can enjoy your favor and that you can bestow your grace upon us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.